Before I start, just for those of you who, who may not know me or may not have heard the news, I am pregnant. I haven't just put on a few extra pounds. <laughs> so I'm about four months pregnant, and I share that because... I don't know, it may be weird for you too, but it's weird for me to preach pregnant. I've never seen anyone preach pregnant, so if you're thinking, oh, that's odd, I think so too, so don't, don't, be, don't feel bad. But I remember uh, the first, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was barely pregnant, I wasn't even showing, and I wore a big top to, to preach, and I was standing up there, and months later, it may have been a year later, somebody came up to me and they were like, I thought you were pregnant that time. I'm like, oh, that means you sat through my entire sermon trying to figure out, is she pregnant or is she fat? So I don't want you all to do that today. So, so I thought I would clear the air, and I am going to be sitting. God bless the babies. All right. So <laughs> what we're going to be talking about this morning is, um, is money or wealth. And, you know, this was... This is one of those topics that people often in the church don't talk about, or if they talk about it, they talk about it in the context of, you know, increasing your giving or trying to figure out how you can get more from God, right? So that's not where we're going with this today. Um, and to set the tone, I want to read a passage that's probably familiar to um, a lot of us. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 34 to 40. And just to give a very little, you know, just a little bit of context, um, where we're picking up in the story is after Jesus has had a conversation with the Sadducees who have come at him, and this was a group of people who didn't believe in the resurrection. So they asked Jesus about the resurrection, and he basically schools them, and so that's what has come before. Um, so picking up in verse 34, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, like I said, while, while this passage is probably familiar to many of you, it's not one that you typically hear in a sermon about money. But I believe that it's absolutely imperative for us to gain an understanding of this passage if we are going to have any understanding of money, what Scripture says about money. We have to take this to heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The love that Jesus is referring to here is not, it's not about, you know, feelings or an emotional response, right? So this passage is not calling us to feel warmly towards God or to be nice to our neighbors. The love that Jesus is referring to here is characterized by commitment, by devotion. This passage calls us to give our entire beings, our whole selves to God, to trust that God's will for our lives is best and to earnestly seek that will. Similarly, this passage, like I said, it's not about treat people nicely, you know, think fondly of your neighbor. It's calling us to live sacrificial lives for the other. And 
please know that your neighbor is not just a person who may look like you or who you even know, who you feel comfortable with. Your neighbor is everybody, (laughs) basically. So this passage calls us to live lives where we are concerned, where we care, where we give ourselves for the other. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is the foundation of true community, right? It's what we are trying to be when we say we want to be, you know, an authentic community. We want to be a new community. This is the foundation. Now, a passage that um, some of you may be more familiar with when it comes to talking about money in the church comes from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And this is so often misquoted, right? So it's not the love. Money isn't the root. It's, it's not the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. But this is something we're more familiar about. There's been songs about it. And what I want to submit to you today is that the reason the love of money is a root of evil is because loving money, serving money, makes it absolutely impossible to love God with your whole self and to love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is the why, this is a reason why wealth is dealt with so much in scripture. And you may not be aware of this, but wealth is talked about money is talked about more than almost anything else, like in the whole of scripture. There's a whole lot in the Bible on money, what we ought to do with our wealth. It matters to God. And more than, you know, what we do with our money, God is concerned with how we think about our money, what our orientation is to our wealth. Because as we're going to see, The way that we think about money not only directly impacts our ability to love God and to love neighbor, but it also impacts our ability to experience fully the love of God. So I'm going to make three key claims this morning. The first is that the love of money or wealth profoundly skews our perception of others. The second is that the love of money or wealth profoundly skews our perception of ourselves And finally, that the love of money profoundly dictates our priorities. So let's get to it. (laughs) So the first proposition, the love of money, the love of wealth, skews our perceptions of the other. And I'll use those terms, money, wealth, interchangeably throughout this sermon. So what do I mean by this? We often believe that the presence or absence of personal wealth in a person's life is a measure of their spiritual state. Now, I bet some of you don't buy that right off the bat, but think about even the way we talk about ministry. Who is it that we are most often going to minister to? Who said it? The poor, right? Now, before, (laughs) that's okay, right? That's not a bad thing. And in fact, that many of the references to wealth and money in Scripture are about just that, helping the widow, feeding those who are hungry. God is concerned about us taking care of the very least of these. That's important to God. And that's something that we as a church are trying to do, right? So, so what's the issue? The way that meeting the physical needs of the poor is often framed is as a means to an end. And that end is evangelism. Now again, that is not a bad thing. Evangelism is good. We want to be evangelists. We want to share the love of God with people so that they can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is not a bad thing. This is a huge part of what it means to love neighbor, right? That, that is giving yourself for the other. 
But the problem is the assumption that often underlies that aim. See, many of us often believe that the reason we need to go out and serve the poor is because they don't know Jesus already. I mean, after all, they're, they're poor. And if you're still not convinced, think about when was the last time you heard a sermon about or were involved in a ministry that was directly aimed at reaching the middle class and affluent people for Jesus? When was the last time you rolled through Wilmette or some other affluent neighborhood and thought, oh my God, my heart is broken. These people do not know the Lord. That's just not how we move through the world, right? <laughs> and don't feel alone in this. this. Money was often thought about this throughout scripture. And there's, there's good reason. It's not illogical to make this conclusion when you read the biblical witness, right? There's a lot of things that seem to make this correlation, bet- correlation between being good, doing good, and being blessed, and doing wrong and being not in God's favor. So it's easy, I think, to look at Scripture and sometimes get a little bit confused. But that is confusion. (laughs) Earlier um, in the first Timothy passage that I I quoted, Paul talks about this. He talks about people who mistake godliness as a means to wealth. So this is something that Throughout scripture, people struggled with and wrestled with. And I think a great example of this is the story of Job. Um, And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, basically Job is a wealthy man by all accounts. He had, you know, land, he had flocks, he had seven sons and three daughters. And again, having a lot of children is a blessing in and of itself. But specifically at that time in an agricultural society, having a lot of children, especially a lot of sons, that that was a part of your wealth. This man was very rich. And the Bible tells us that he was also upright and blameless before the Lord. And as the story goes, um, God and the devil get into a series of conversations And the devil basically makes the case that, well, you know, the only reason why Job serves you, the only reason why Job is faithful is because he's been blessed. He has all this stuff. You take all this stuff away, or if you let me take all this stuff away, he won't serve you. He'll curse you. And God allows the devil to do this. And um, I encourage you guys to read the story if you haven't or if you haven't in a while. But basically, in a matter of days, Job goes from being very wealthy, by all accounts, to being very poor, (laughs) He loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his possessions, his land. He even loses his good health. Now, like I said, there's a whole lot in this story that you can take about suffering, about our relationship with God, about how we are able to interact with God. There's a lot here. So I strongly encourage you to read the story. But for the purpose of this sermon, I want to focus on Job's friends. So he has three friends who come and being good friends, they want to sit with him because they see that their brother is hurting. So they come to give him good, wise counsel. And the crux of their advice to him is, Job, you have clearly sinned. Repent so that God will go ahead and remove this curse that's on you and restore you, bless you. So I want to read a little bit of what one of the friends, the first friend says. So in chapter 4, I'm going to read, start with verses 7 through 9. So the first friend says to Job, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And the breath of God, at the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. 
Continuing in chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, he says, I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among the thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Blessed is the one who God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Basically, Job, clearly you are wrong, but God is loving. If you get right, he'll, he'll make it right too. These friends mistakenly believe that Job's suffering is a direct result of some sin he has committed. They falsely believe that God is punishing Job. Now, they knew Job, so they knew that he was a faithful and upright man. But can you imagine what they would have thought of him if they didn't know him? The assumption would have been, clearly this is a godless man. Clearly this is someone very far from the Lord. And now before we get too hard on these friends... Understand that they didn't pull this out of thin air. They had passages like Deuteronomy 28 to draw from. And this chapter, it paints a clear picture um, of a path to blessing and a path to curses. And at the start, it explicitly says that if you obey the Lord, you will be blessed. And this blessing includes having land, having abundant crops, having flocks and children, among other things. And it closes by talking about what will happen if you don't obey God. You'll be cursed. You won't have land. You won't have flocks. So their understanding of Job's condition was not illogical. But they were wrong. See, Job's friends had a very simplistic view of God's relationship with us. If I do good, then God will bless me. If I do bad, then God will punish me. Now, For our Old Testament ancestors and our New Testament ancestors, and us for that matter, like I said, it's easy to understand how they could come to think this way. If you think about Job's friends, their lives would have been marked by sacrifices and offerings that they made to God because of their sin and to to get the favor of the Lord. But for them and us, this is not how God relates to us. This is a simplistic view of what it means to be blessed, what it means to be cursed. And that's what God says to, in, ultimately in the book of Job. See, God's blessing and favor are outpours of his grace. In other words, you being blessed has absolutely nothing to do with you. God blesses us because he is God. He loves us. He is gracious. He is merciful towards us. There's absolutely nothing that we can do or not do to change God's orientation towards us. And we've seen that throughout this sermon series, this idea that God is constantly pursuing us, chasing after us, in spite of us, in spite of our sinfulness. That is who God is. He's not a genie in a bottle. There's no magic formula. You don't get to do X, Y, and Z and then be assured that you will be blessed, and blessed meaning wealthy. (laughs) So at the close of this story, God rebukes the three friends for having been wrong about who he is, and he tells them to repent, and he affirms that Job was right not to repent of the sin he had not committed. 
In chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, God says to the first friend, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayers and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And, and I really, like I said, please go back and read this story because Job says some amazing things to God. <laughs> he is suffering and he cries out to God. He is angry with God. He is confused. He is frustrated. And so I, I think that this here, God saying, you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has, is powerful in the witness of that whole story. So I encourage you guys to go back and read that. But this brings us to our second proposition. Um, And this proposition is directly related to the first one, but there are a few nuances that I want to point out. So the second proposition is that the love of money or wealth has a profound way of skewing our perception of ourselves. Now, when I say ourselves here, I'm not speaking um, at the individual level, although that is true for, I think, probably all of us, if not most of us. I think if most of us were put in Job's position, we would have immediately started trying to go down the list. What did I do, God? What, did, what do you want me to do? Like, could we please move away from this place, <laughs> right? Because this is often how we gauge our own spiritual well-being. If I have, then I am doing well. If I don't have, I'm, I have clearly offended the Lord. I've sinned. God is not with me. This is absolutely true on an individual level, but when, what I want to talk about is the implications that this thinking has on a somewhat larger scale. Wealth is often a false indicator of a community's spiritual state. If we are wealthy, we are experiencing God's blessing. If we are not wealthy, God is not with us. I think this has become a huge problem in the church. We measure success by wealth. The bigger the operating budget of a church or a particular ministry within a church, the more successful it is. You pastor a mega church in the United States, you not only, you know, can get paid as a result of being a pastor, but you can write books. People want to know, how did you do it? What can I do? I want a big church. This is how we measure success. And the danger in this is that it can blind us to what God is actually trying to do. It can, help, it can prevent us from seeing the sin in our own lives as a community, as a body. Ministries that may very well not be pleasing to God can run for forever as long as there is financial support. It prevents us from seeking God's will for our lives. The other danger, and I confess this is the one that is most um, close to my heart, is that in a world... Um, in a country where the unequal distributions of wealth have very little to do with God's favor and everything to do with the sinful nature of humanity, mistaking abundant wealth with righteousness or extreme poverty with unrighteousness can and will lead us to closing our eyes to things like racism, sexism, global systems that disadvantage entire regions of the world for the benefit of others. We won't see it. Why should we see it? We are blessed. God is clearly with us. And if you don't believe me, go back and look at news clippings from things that happened in Katrina or the Haiti um, situation, the earthquake in Haiti. 
constantly heard this language coming out of the church of clearly these people, this area, this country has sinned, and this is why they are experiencing this. Now, again, you may not agree, but I think if God was going to start just sending his wrath down because of sinfulness, I'm, I'm thinking America as a whole would be the first to go. Now, that's just, that's just me. <laughs> so the love of money can blind us to the sin that we may very well be contributing to. See, this last, um, this is at least part of what I think Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 6. Um, in verses 21 through 23, after admonishing us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, rather than treasures on earth, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. At first reading, verse 22 seems oddly sandwiched between these two passages that are clearly about money. Don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. But I think that this, Jesus' words make a profound statement about the dangers of the love of money. I think another way to understand what Jesus is saying here is that where your treasure is, there your vested interests will be. And if your vested interests are in wrong places, you will be blind to the very evils that you may be contributing to. So this brings me to my third and final proposition. The love of money or wealth has a profound way of ordering our priorities. You know why you can't serve both God and money? <laughs> because they require, what they require of your life are diametrically opposed. So God calls us to lives of radical generosity. When God is our master, we give freely because we have total trust in his abundance and his provision for us. If money is our master, we can't help but fear scarcity because there is absolutely never going to be enough. And we see that all around our culture. There are folk who are wealthy beyond our imaginations who are constantly trying to get more and more and more, who feel insecure about their financial state. There are millionaires, billionaires who feel insecure about their financial state. You can't get enough. Serving money demands that you always be striving to get more and to hold on tightly to what you already have. And it makes perfect sense. If money is your master, if money is what you serve, then why on earth would you freely let it go? The same can be true of God. I'm not letting go of Jesus anytime soon, right? If it's your master, you must hold on to it. And hear this. Again, money itself is not the issue. So money is neutral. (laughs) Wealth is neutral. It's our orientation to money and wealth that are at issue. There are many of us, I would say all of us on some level in this country, who have been blessed with money and wealth, and we've been called to use that to advance the kingdom of God. And people are doing that in amazing and awesome ways. Money in the hands of someone who serves the Lord faithfully can be a powerful tool to advance the cause of Jesus. So it's not money. 
That's the problem. It's the love of money that Paul talks about. When Jesus, it's where we place our hearts that Jesus is getting at here. See, remember what I said at the start of this sermon. Ultimately, what we have been called to do is to love God with our entire beings and to love one another as we do ourselves. Money itself does not hinder this. But a wrong orientation to money makes it impossible. You can't love God with your whole self if there are parts of you that you withhold. And if money is your master, you will absolutely withhold some parts. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you are unwilling to give freely to live a life of radical generosity towards that neighbor. And if money is your master, you will not because it requires, it demands that you hoard, that you seek more and more, often at the expense of your neighbor. I think that the best illustration um, of this is the story of the rich young man. So turn your, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. So in this story, a rich young man comes up to Jesus and asks um, what good thing he needs to do in order to have eternal life. And so beginning with verse 17, Jesus answers. What, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So what's going on in this story? Well, the first thing I want you to take note of um, in the passage are the commandments that Jesus tells the man to keep. So he doesn't list all ten commandments. Um, And in fact, the only ones that he does mention are the ones that have to do with one's relationship to other people. I don't think this is an accident. Now, clearly, the other commandments are very important, so I'm not saying that. But I think that Jesus comments about, um, I think that what Jesus does comments to us about how difficult it is um, for a rich person to enter heaven. It is directly related to this idea of the other and how difficult it is for us to even see our relationship to the other when money is our master. So the young man's response when Jesus tells him this is that he has already done all the things that Jesus says. So you, I haven't, I haven't done, I, yeah, I've kept all those commandments. So I think that here both the question that Jesus asks and the answer that the rich man gives um, tell us that this is not the case. So let's look at the question. I'm sorry, not the question Jesus asked, the question that the, the rich man asks. He comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? In other words, what do I need to do, teacher, to get what I want? 
So this question is one that likely drove this man's life because that's the question that the love of money demands. What do I need to do to keep what I have to get more of what I want? This man, he approaches Jesus desiring to acquire eternal life as though it was a commodity that he could attain. What do I need to do to get what I want? So Jesus gives him an answer. Follow these commandments, one of which is love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, well, I've already, I've already done this. I've kept these commandments. What else do I need to do? Now, I find that to be very interesting. I don't know about you, but I'm going to spend my whole entire life trying to live into keeping these commandments. But his answer reveals that in his mind, this is a one-time act. Okay, I haven't killed anybody to date, and I haven't committed adultery. I've honored my father and mother. And yeah, okay, yeah, I've loved my neighbor as myself. I'm good. What else? This betrays this man's orientation, his, his mindset towards his money and what he's really trying to get Jesus to tell him and to give him. He's already accomplished it. This, I think, um, the fact that this man is not able to see his own sin because of his orientation to his money, I think is made very clear in what Jesus tells him to do. Go and sell your possessions to the poor and give the money. So to this, he has one response. He doesn't say a single solitary word else to Jesus. He doesn't, um, he doesn't ask another question. He just walks away. And I think it's important that Matthew tells us that he walks away sad. He doesn't just say, at this, the man walked away. He tells us how this man felt. And I think that this sadness is a perfect illustration of Jesus' words that you cannot serve two masters. It's not simply that the man doesn't want to do this. It's not simply that he is unwilling to sell his possessions and give the money to the poor. He can't. Money is his master. To give it away, it's unfathomable to him. So he's deeply saddened. Basically, if this thing, if this eternal life requires that I betray my true master, I can't do it. And he's saddened by that. Now, if you're like me, you don't immediately see yourself in the young man. I've read this story tons and tons of times, and I don't, I don't initially read it and feel convicted like that's me, right? Because we think, no, I would give, I'd give everything away for God, whatever you call me to Jesus. We believe that often, and that may be true. I can't speak to your own heart, but what I will tell you is this. To know if you are like this young man, you cannot discern this on your own. The very nature of the love of money prevents you from being able to get this on your own. You must do this in community. You must have people in your life who you trust to hold you accountable to what you do with your wealth. People in your life who can ask you tough questions about your generosity, about where your heart is. Because you will be blinded. to the sin in your own life if money is truly your master. That's just the nature of the beast. (laughs) So I encourage you, for those of you who are part of this church, who are part of community groups, this is something to talk about in your community group. Talk about money. Talk about your finances with people who you trust, who you love. Pray, invite God to speak to you about this, because I guarantee you, you cannot just sit in a a pew, you cannot live through your regular life, take a survey of your own heart, and come to a true understanding of where you are in terms of this sin.
we have been called to lives of radical generosity. And I assure you that anytime you give, it's going to feel radical <laughs> if money is your master. <laughs> so we have to hold each other accountable. So this brings me to the last point that I want to leave with you with today. And um, the worship team, you can come up. Uh, you might stand for a while, but you can come up. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so what is the good news in all this? The good news about this is that God cares about this. This is important to the Lord. Our orientation to money and wealth is important to God, not because God needs our money or our wealth, right? That's not like God is not sitting in heaven like, I wish I need them to do right because, man, I'm broke. That's just not, that's not what's happening <laughs> in, in the heavenly realms. <laughs> God cares about how we think and feel about our wealth because he loves us, um, I want to read for you a passage, and it's not going to come up on the board. I just want you to hear it. And this is, again, in, in Matthew chapter 6. And so after he has given this, Jesus has given this talk about, you know, not being able to serve God and money, he goes on to talk about worry. And I want you to hear his words. Um, I'm going to read for you Matthew six twenty-five through 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field? <laughs> They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's the word of the Lord. So at the start of this sermon, I said that not only does the love of money directly um, inhibit our ability to love God and love neighbor, but it prevents us from being able to fully experience the love of God See, this is what I was getting at. The love of money, serving money, will demand everything from you. But it's a cruel master. You will never be able to give enough. You will never have enough. You will not be satisfied. You will labor in vain. It's a heavy burden. But we serve a God who says, I don't desire that from you. When I am your master... I give you liberty. I give you freedom. There is abundance in me. I delight in blessing you. You don't ever have to worry about what you'll eat or drink or wear. You don't have to strive needlessly to get more and more and more because you will have more of me than you could ever imagine. God is concerned about our orientation to our wealth because he loves us. 
He does not desire us to live lives of fruitless toil. He does not desire us to live lives in poor relationships with one another because of money. So the good news is that there is freedom. (laughs) There is freedom in Christ. Why be in bondage to money when you can serve a master who gives liberty? Why fear scarcity when you can have abundant life? Why live as though everyone around you is your competition when you have been called to fellowship with brothers and sisters? This is the good news. This is the high calling. This is the life that we have been called into. And so when God is our master, we can seek him. We can seek his will for our lives, and that orients what we do with our money. When God is our master, we understand that the blessings of God are not necessarily related to wealth or lack thereof, that God's blessings are far greater than that. You may be wealthy. I would say we are all wealthy, and that's fine. But when we serve God, we get to seek his will for what to do with that. We get to be a blessing to others instead of a stumbling block and a curse to others. The good news is that God loves you way too much to not be concerned about what you think about your money. So my prayer for all of us Lord knows this, my prayer for me, is that we would live the kind of lives where we can be transparent with one another, that we could be true community for each other in this area. I'm going to close and I'm going to pray that throughout this week, throughout this month, throughout this year, that you would begin to develop and cultivate relationships where you can be honest with folk about this. Because I think that if we are going to be the church that we believe God has called us to be, these are the kinds of things we need to talk. Somebody other than you needs to know what your credit score is. (laughs) I'm going to just put that out there. And the Lord knows that convicts me, right? (laughs) Somebody other than you and the Lord needs to know what your debt is. Because that will give you a good indication of where your heart is. So that's how I'm going to pray for us as I close. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Lord, I thank you that you love us far too much to let us just do what we want to do with our wealth, with our resources. I thank you that you love us far too much to not care about how we feel, how we think about those things. God, my prayer in this year as we are seeking to be authentic community for each other is that you would truly grow those relationships and those trusts. Lord, it is completely countercultural to share your financial woes, to share your financial status with someone who is a friend. It's completely countercultural. Everything around us tells us that that's your business. God, so I pray that you would break the things, the shame, the fear, whatever it is. I pray that you would break down the barriers that prevent us from being able to be transparent in these areas. I ask for each and every person in this room, including myself, that you would show us people in our lives who we can be honest with in these ways. And if we don't have people in our lives, that you would bring those folk to us and that you would start to develop and cultivate those relationships. God, we desire to love you with our whole selves. We desire to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we know that the only way we can do this is through your grace and mercy and power in our lives. God, so we pray that you would break down everything that would keep us from you, that would keep us from that greatest commandment. Lord, we confess that we have failed in this area. 
we confess that we have not loved you with our whole selves, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, and we ask that you would forgive us and that you would continue to work in our hearts that this would be true of us. It's in Christ Jesus' name that I pray and ask these things, and it is through Christ's blood that I know you have heard my prayers. And because I know you have heard my prayers, God, it is through Christ that I can stand boldly and faithfully and say, thank you, Jesus, for answering them. Amen. Amen. New community, go from this place free from worry, knowing that you serve a loving God who gives you abundant life. I pray that you are blessed this week. Amen. (laughs) 